0: Welcome, everybody. This is uh, the second Sunday of the month, so uh, some of us are out in our community. The Hub, for example, are prayer walking uh, this morning and uh, seeking God's heart for the town as a whole, and also trying to lean into what God's saying to them about their particular neighborhoods where He has put them. The real work of mission and discipleship Takes place out in our communities. Whilst it's essential that we gather like this to worship and to listen to God's word together, we balance that by building communities of mission and discipleship just like Jesus. Uh, did. So uh, my encouragement to you, if you're not connected with a community in one way or another, then can I urge you that that's the place to belong, to learn what it is to grow, to be supported in your Christian journey. And uh, I personally and we together would love to help you get connected. If you're not in a community though, then here's the place to be certainly on a Sunday week by week. And uh, we're going to share in God's word uh, together. A couple of things before we get into Mark chapter 14. Thank you to those of you who uh, prayed for uh, me last weekend. I spent last weekend, just last weekend, in uh, Canada... And I was part of a team helping a group of church leaders with their teams think about what it means for their churches to uh, relearn. That's what they're calling themselves, a relearning community. They're trying to relearn some things that they've understood that they've lost over the passage of time. Just like us, they were almost single-mindedly focused ...on doing Sunday worship brilliantly well... ...in the hope that if we got Sunday worship perfectly right... ...then our churches would grow and people would be discipled... ...and just like us, they are discovering not only is that not happening but actually our single-minded focus has taken us in some measure off track with the kind of things that Jesus was uh, teaching. So I was super encouraged by their uh, enthusiasm to engage in this journey. They've already been on it for several years in terms of a whole denomination out there, a denominational level saying we as a whole group of churches need to take mission and discipleship out in the community really, really seriously. So even though I lost A night's sleep, I came back pretty fired up about that for myself and for us here. And uh, we're playing just our tiny part, just a really small part in what God is doing around the world in awakening. A new reformation by His Spirit that discipleship gets put back in the hands of ordinary people in our ordinary lives. And as we've received so much from churches and church leaders, it's a privilege for us just to share a little bit of our journey. Not that we've got it uh, uh, sussed by a long way, but we're just ten seconds ahead of some others, and we can help them for the ten seconds that we're ahead of them in either by helping them learn by the ten seconds that we've messed up, or by the fortuitous nature of us maybe getting something right along the way. Um, what I wanted to say before I got into Mark chapter 14 is something about uh, our life together. It is an amazing thing that almost goes unnoticed a lot of the time that we give 15% of our income away to other missions Locally, in the neighborhood here, in the town of Ipswich, in the nation of the United Kingdom, and to the ends of the earth, to our Jerusalem, uh, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And as a church, we want to try all of the time to have really good ways to stay connected with what we are doing, uh, not just with that money, but what we're doing with that partnership. We're not just sending money, we're wanting to say that we're with you, we want to resource you, and we also want to say we need to learn from you in what you're doing in various parts around the world. So this is a promo Because I'm asking for someone to help in this process. As you go into coffee this morning, on the left hand side there is a Perspex rack that has been there for a long time. And it's representative of some of the missions that we support and we encourage. I'm looking for someone to take responsibility, to keep that up to date, to keep that alive, to keep that fresh with the 15 or so different mission connections that we have uh, as a church. So um, you can form an orderly queue at the end, and uh, be polite, don't elbow people out of the way because you're desperate to do it, Uh, but it's a significant task uh, in the great scheme of things. Hey, the last two weeks at Burlington have been brilliant, haven't they? Do you remember Jane preaching about responsibility and relationship? How cool was that? And then Alan last week talking about the prayer room and waiting and that... He had this lovely phrase in the middle of it which I, I won't embarrass him to try and repeat and I, I can only um, caricature it because I didn't write it down as I listened to it about the prayer room providing a structure for our ill discipline. And I thought it was a, a lovely way that God gifts us with structures to draw us into the things that we otherwise would would not do. And uh, uh, and I only listened to it on the podcast because I wasn't here and he asked for a show of hands about those who felt God's presence in the prayer room and, and by his audible response I think that was... Was pretty good. So that's a great thing, isn't it? That when we set aside time to meet with God, He always meets with us. And you know sometimes when you're too busy for someone and you're not fully present? Have you ever done that? Maybe once or twice? And you're not quite there, do you know, and someone's talking, and it's, well, you're somewhere else. Whenever we meet with God, He's fully present in our moment. That's incredible, isn't it? He's fully there in that moment and He meets with us. What a great uh, gift. We had a great day yesterday, team of leaders uh, from Burlington, trustees, ministry team. We spent the day away together praying and uh, uh, and sharing vision and reflecting on where God was leading us as a church and we're super blessed by all of those uh, people. Remember to pray for them. And finally, uh, a super cracking communications time uh, this morning. If you weren't there, you missed a real treat of people sharing from God's word, grappling with what it means to communicate it well. And uh, if you've been tempted to ever come to a cracking communications morning, then can I tempt you a little bit more because you're missing something uh, special. Even if you have no intention of preaching. Voice over on, voice over off. Even if you have no intention of um, preaching in this context, just the learning, some of the skills of uh, of communicating together. Right, that wasn't the sermon. I'm going to focus now on what we're supposed to be doing. Is that all right? Mark chapter 14, here we go. You got it open? Uh, We read some of it, but we're going to cover all of it, not quite in the same level of detail, but we're going to take the same kind of principle that we've been looking at. We're not zooming in and looking at one word or one verse. I have books on my bookshelves from people like uh, Martin Lloyd Jones, who've written a whole book on one word or one verse, but we're taking a whole chapter. And so we know that we can't deeply analyze each little bit of it. But as we step back and survey the scene, we're saying, okay, so what's this, what's this chapter, this chunk as a whole trying to teach us? What's the theme there as we, as we step back and look at it from that uh, perspective? The dominant theme that I'm offering you this morning for Mark chapter 14 is this, extravagant Devotion. It's a call on your life and mine to be extravagantly devotional towards Jesus. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, what do we know about Simon the leper from that sentence? He had a home. He wasn't a leper anymore, otherwise he wouldn't be in his home. So he's back, he's rehabilitated. So you could read, while he was in Bethany, reclining at the table of, uh, uh, in the home of Simon the healed leper, And I feel kind of bad for him for that, really, in a way. Because you don't always want to be known as the things you were healed and rescued from, do you? Simon, rescued from... I'm not telling you. Gosh, wouldn't let me stand here. And if I knew about you, I wouldn't let you come either. So, so, you know, I mean, but there we are. Here it is, Simon the leper. A woman came in... So incidentally, it's probably a celebration of lots of people that have been healed and touched by Jesus, and as the normal onlookers outside is standing rise. A woman came in with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. We're in about verse 3. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. She broke the jar. She was intent on using all of it. You don't break your perfume jar every morning, do you? You don't use it all. It's way too expensive uh, for that. No, some of you, it's not that expensive. <laughs> but for most of us, it's way too expensive to break the whole jar and pour it all. She breaks and pours it all on his head. Pause for a moment. It must have been lovely to have the whole lot of expensive perfume poured on your head. It's Palestine, it's sweaty. It's smelly, the dust and the grit gets in your eyes and in your hair and in your beard. We assume Jesus had a beard because all godly Christians have beards, so I extrapolate back and assume he had a beard. So it's all gritty and sweaty and stuff. And she pours the ointment, the perfume, the sweet-smelling fragrance onto his head and it trickles down his face. And uh, I want you to think... Um, about a really posh hotel. You know, when you wash your hands and your hands just slip through the thick moisture and you think, gosh, I'll never have hand soap as rich as this in my own home. And you would be right. Or, or you go to a spa day and you've, someone's gifted you an exorbitant amount of money for you to be pampered in what do they do? Mud or something. I don't know. And apparently it's supposed to feel great and they're just rubbing stuff from the back garden on you and you're going, "Oh, this is lovely, so rich. Look at my skin. It's so smooth. You got the idea. There was an extravagance about it. It's a once in a lifetime, not even a lifetime. This perfume in today's kind of uh, uh, cost would be about thirty to 50,000 pounds. This is a lot of money. This is not a... Uh, you know, this is not the stuff that smells like cow's urine. You know, this is decent stuff. No wonder he got a reaction. But before we think about the reaction, let's pause about the extravagant grace. What's the most extravagant thing you have done for Jesus? Turn to the person next to you and see if you can articulate something of the extravagant thing that you've done for Jesus. Go. Go. I'm going to bring you in because it's quite a difficult question to be fair and I just thought I'm not going to ask you to share this but just think in your head about what your extravagant kind of what you would have said if you've got chance to speak there's always one person who's in and one person who's glad that the other person's in in that conversation. Um, uh, a 10 is I'm really proud of what I had to say. I can think of something super extravagant that I've done for Jesus and I, I'm a 10 Maybe actually I feel a bit awkward about what I think my most extravagant thing is. I, I, I'm perhaps a two or i I'm just a bit uncomfortable. feeling a bit awkward now in the room about my level of extravagance. Let's, let's push on and dig deeper because there's, there's, there's gold to be found. We might have to go through a lot of mud to get there, but there's gold coming. Remember that what's going on in, in lots of these stories that Mark's telling... They are physical, real stories, but in the grace and wisdom of God, they're, they're always deeper and pointing to something richer. Like the clearing of the temple is pointing to something beyond itself. Like the fig tree, pointing to something beyond itself. So here, in a way, what this woman is doing is so beautiful and wonderful in its own right, but it, but it, is, it is pointing beyond itself. It's firstly a, a heck of a lot of money, as we mentioned some moments ago. So what was this? Where would you get £30,000 in a perfume? What, what is it? Well, it was almost certainly a family heirloom. It represented the financial security of the family. If something terrible was to happen and there was no way for them to earn money, the family could turn to this alabaster flask of perfume as their safety and security. Yet she took what was her safety and security. She took what was her most valuable possession and she broke it and poured it on Jesus's head. In one extravagant display of love, she is saying so much more. She's saying to Jesus, this is the most valuable thing I have, and I give it to you. I give it to you. No longer was a flask of ointment, her. Uh, Safety or security. She would have it no longer. I give you that which is most valuable. That which I would most naturally cling on to. And I give it to you as a sign that you are now my most prized, my most valuable possession. My safety and my security is now inextricably linked with who you are, Jesus. And I love you. I give you everything I have. And then you will know from other passages where the other writers um, mention this story that she used her hair to wipe his feet. In in that culture, letting your hair down as a woman was a a huge sign of openness and vulnerability. There's a a completeness here. I give you everything I have, and more than that, I give you everything I am. In that moment, in this moment of, of total devotion and surrender, to Jesus and we're left going wow that's amazing and we agree with Jesus it's such a great act she did what she could and we agree with Jesus this is a story that should be told wherever the gospel is proclaimed and celebrated so here we are 2,000 years on telling this same story of a woman's act of abandoned reckless devotion to Jesus we love those stories don't we We love the way she goes against and challenges the convention... We love, at least some of us more than others depending on our personality, loves that she's kind of rubbing the nose of the posh people in their face because it seems to be a waste and they're all on their high horse about what they should have done or she should have done with the perfume. We love the display of love and beauty. It's the story of life, isn't it? Almost every film has in it this extravagant act of sacrificial love that in the end wins the day. It's built into who we are as people because It's built into who God is. We love the stories, except when, like a boomerang, they come around and begin to challenge us. And those watching begin to freak out. They're feeling decidedly uncomfortable. Verse 4. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages, correct? And the money given to the poor... And they rebuked her harshly. Now, don't get sidetracked on the issue of the poor. The poor is a smokescreen. That's how they were using it. They're feeling embarrassed. They're feeling uncomfortable about such devotion to Jesus. Because when you see someone who is so totally devoted to Jesus, it challenges your own devotion. Are you with me? And that's what creates a reaction sometimes in us. And so it was true with them. They, they're reacting, they're embarrassed by such over-the-top love that's being publicly displayed. And Jesus calls them out and says, you want to talk about the poor, but to be fair, you've always had the poor with you, and you've not really done anything about the poor, so don't really make them an issue now. It's a smokescreen. They're embarrassed by this extravagant, reckless, wild devotion. And so they try and deflect the conversation. Sometimes we've been embarrassed, haven't we, by people's over-the-top Christian devotion? You ever been embarrassed by one of those over-the-top Christians? If you haven't, then you probably are one of those over-the-top Christians. You know, you all know the ones I mean. You know, the way out wacky ones. I mean, maybe you've heard of Christians selling their possessions and giving to the poor and living in community. How over-the-top is that? Or giving up a lucrative job to travel to another part of the world and share the life of Jesus. Or even more over-the-top, some people have reported that people dance in church and we can be a little bit embarrassed about the extreme, extravagant devotion because it challenges our own devotion. It's not about the dance. It's not about the, what they did with their money. But something in us, when we see it in others, goes, oh, it, it invites or asks a question of me then rather awkwardly we remember that all those over-the-top things I've just mentioned are quite normal in the Bible. So embarrassed and wanting to deflect that this group of men rebuke this woman harshly. People don't half overreact sometimes in the face of overwhelming devotion. Dancing in church, that's terrible. Well, why such a reaction? Oh, I just find it really annoying when people lift their hands in worship. You know, it's old hat, it's been round church circles for decades now. But the reaction is... Not about hands or down, because it challenges something of our own level of devotion. We might well express it differently for sure, and that's fine. It's not about that. But when we see what we think is an over-the-top act of love for Jesus, we go, gosh, what is my over-the-top act of love for Jesus? Remember what Jesus said. He said, that, looking at the broken alabaster jar, that, that over-the-top Rather embarrassing act of love and devotion, that that act of uh, of intimacy, that act of abandonment, he says that's a beautiful thing. That's what Jesus said. He said that is a beautiful thing. And so we keep digging, mining for gold in this passage. Why such extravagant devotion? Do you notice how Mark sets up the story? If you've been following this series, which you should, whether you're here or not, and you should be here. But if you're not here, you can follow it on the podcast. Why such Notice how Mark sets up the story. He does what he does with so many of his stories. The clue to the story is what comes just before it and what comes just after it. We saw that with the clearing of the temple a few weeks ago. The clue is often just at the beginning and just at the end. And then Mark tells a story that seems at first glance not to have much to do with anything that's going on. And then you go, oh yeah, everything to do with what's going on. So, look what's happening here. Mark writes the Gospel telling this story that this woman has insight that neither the religious leaders of verse 1, who were trying to kill Jesus, nor some of his disciples... One in particular who's trying to betray him have. So this woman sees something, knows something, that provokes this act of devotion that neither the religious leaders of verse 1 nor some of the disciples of verse 11 at the end of the story can see at all. you with me? So can you see how the story begins to work on us as we understand it in its context? Mark is saying, and the emphasis is mine here, but I think it's legitimate and I think it's how it would have been heard in the cultural context, think two of men and women and so on and how they were understood, Mark is saying, look, this woman can see what's really happening with these religious men and these male disciples can't see what's going on at all. That's how it would have been heard, I think, by those who first read what Mark was writing. It's part of the redemptive history of women, the way God's rehabilitating women to their rightful place in uh, his kingdom. Why this act then? We're zooming in on it now. Why this act of of extravagant devotion? Simply this, because she can see what's happening. Jesus put it like this. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Devotion comes from seeing what Jesus did for us. Devotion comes from seeing what Jesus did for us. Let me ask you a question. If you knew that Jesus was hours away from his death, crucifixion for your sin and mine, would there be any perfume too expensive to anoint him with? If you know that Jesus has given everything that he could on the cross for you, and for me, and taken on himself on the cross, everything that I've messed up, screwed up, failed at, my sin, my ugliness, my shame, and my guilt. Is there anything too costly to give back to him? That's what this whole story is evoking in those early readers, and by the Spirit of God evokes in us. Because in what happens next, Jesus totally redefines what true devotion is. And we're invited to eat it, to touch it, to see it, and to taste it. This is my body broken for you. Can you see that there in those verses? This is my blood poured poured out for you. And notice how Mark writes about the way the men's hearts were exposed by the women's devotion... And he now shows how our hearts are exposed by Jesus' devotion. Extravagant devotion is called for, but we have to be honest and say extravagant devotion is challenged in all of us. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. So he knows, doesn't he? I don't think for a minute Jesus didn't know who it was, do you? And he goes, one of you will. What does that do to everyone in the room? You know, you're in a class. One of you wrote on the board that rude word, and I'm going to find out who it is. Probably 29 people out of 30 feel guilty, and the person that did it doesn't feel guilty at all. Because that's what it does. You know, you walk through security at the airport, and you think, did I put drugs in my bag? Because <laughs> that context, did you get what I mean? It, 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 it causes you to self-examine. And that's what Jesus is doing there. He's saying, so, okay, which one of you guys? And they're going, they're going is it me? Is, is it me? Uh, and then they do what we all do. We compare ourselves with others, don't we? Well, if it is me, it can't really be me because Thomas, he would have been worse than me. So it will be Thomas before it's me. And Thomas is going, well, it will be Bartholomew before it's me. Bartholomew will be going, it's whatever. And so it goes round. And, and that's what they're doing. They're in this kind of self-examination, this cauldron. And it says in verse 19, they were saddened. And one of them said to one another, surely you don't mean me. And and as they go through the evening, self-confidence seems to be rising. Well, it's not me. I'm all right, Jack. So we race on ahead to verse 27. And Jesus says very simply, do you know what? It's all of you. Let's be absolutely real, says Jesus. It's all of you. You will all fall away. Gulp. But after I've risen, there's always hope, isn't there, with failure in Jesus. Oh, see that? You will all fall, but after, you will fall, but, but God. The Bible's great for preaching, isn't it? Someone ought to think about that. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. What a muppet. Keep your mouth shut, Peter. <laughs> Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered today, yes, tonight, before the crop cock crows twice you yourself will disown me three times and so we go from the everyone will fall away zooming right into peter everyone will fall away but it's not about everyone it's about you it's about me i am peter you are peter as the story draws us in and i love their overconfidence we'll never leave you jesus we'll never let you down and and, and as the the story unfolds it's like jesus goes okay i hear you i hear you i hear you you are the best disciples i'll ever have I, I hear you you'll never stop loving me i i hear you you will be faithful to me to the end i hear you jesus says to the disciples, i can rely on you to the end right we're going to have a prayer meeting all i need you to do is stay awake this was a super low bar entry point for jesus wasn't it for any disciple He doesn't even say pray. just says sit there and stay awake. That's all they have to do. We'll be with you, Jesus, right to the end of the age. We'll never leave you. You will all fall. No, no, Jesus, we're right with you. Right, prayer meeting time. All I want you to do, you don't even have to pray out loud. doesn't even say they have to pray out loud. I mean, how lightly are they getting off? Just stay awake. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter. Unfortunate name at that moment, isn't it? Simon, he said to Peter. Are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Yes, Lord, I surrender all to you. I give you everything I have. I lay down my life for you. Where can we not even stay awake? Where can we not even stay awake? Lord, I love you. I surrender everything that I have to you. Great, says Jesus. I I want you to open up your home to your neighbors. I love you, Lord. I surrender everything to you. I love that song, I surrender all. Of the 21 meals this week, says Jesus, just one with someone that doesn't know me. I want you to take your Sabbath seriously and be committed to either celebration or community every week because that's the rhythm I've built into creation, six and one. It's beginning to hurt my nose, to be honest. I want you to keep one, two, three, four. Five, six, seven, eight, nine pounds out of ten for yourself. Keep it. I want one. I want you to allow someone enough access to your life to be discipled by. I want to pray every day. I want you to pray for the lost people of Ipswich. I love you, Jesus. I give you all my utter devotion. I surrender all. And we can't stay awake. Can't stay awake. The woman saw Jesus' devotion even before it had happened. And they even failed at staying awake because they did not see what Jesus was doing. Or in our case, we do not see repeatedly what Jesus has done. To be honest, I'm not trying to be hard on the disciples. I think if they knew he was about to be arrested, even they would have stayed awake. You with me? They just didn't get it. They just couldn't see it clearly enough. No wonder Paul says, wherever I go, because it's the salvation of humanity, I'm going to preach Christ. And whether you're with him yet or not with him, the only vision for your life is Christ and him crucified. To understand that this God in heaven has given everything for us. Extravagant devotion when we see what he's done. I don't know about you, I lose sight too easily, don't you? I lose sight of the magnitude of a God who would give himself for me. And so when someone pours out perfume all over Jesus, I'm inclined to go, oh, that's a bit weird. And yet in those moments when I really get what he's done for me, when I really understand what I'm forgiven of and for, and what I've been saved from, and what I've been saved towards, in those moments I'll give him everything, easily, without a second thought, because I see it so clearly, but then so easily I lose it from my gaze. Unlike those disciples, I can't even stay awake. Extravagant devotion is called for and challenged, but then at the end of this chapter, it lies crushed, verse 71. Peter, big, bold, mouthy, brash Peter, sitting round a fire, and a young slave girl with no rights, no influence, no authority, no uh, opportunity to challenge, says you were with him, and like a blubbering idiot, just like me, he goes, no. See that overreaction again when our devotion is challenged? No, I'll call down curses on him. I've, I've never seen him. I don't know him. I, I effectively hate him. He began to call down curses on Jesus. Such a contrast with Jesus' steadfastness before the Sanhedrin. We haven't got time to look at that uh, in any detail this morning, but the next bit, such contrast in, these, in what's going on when Jesus is before the Sanhedrin, which was like a, a kind of um, tin pot court, just trying to get clear the way for Jesus to be taken to the, to the Romans. They made up lies and false testimony and so on. And Jesus is steadfast and faithful and in control and determined and focused because he is utterly devoted to you. And I love the phrase that Jesus chooses to use from the Old Testament, the Son of Man, which pictures, uh, which was an image from Daniel of the Son of Man being all-powerful, all-strong, all-determined. So he could have blasted all of those people into outer space like a Star Wars movie, but he was so devoted to all that he was about to do. He, when he said to his father in the garden, not my will but yours, he absolutely meant it, and he was going to go the whole way. And, and the contrast couldn't be greater of Jesus and the disciples. And so where do you end up at the end of this chapter? You end up with Judas who's betrayed him, Peter who's denied him, and all the others that have legged it, and the one bloke who's legged it without his clothes on. You read that bit? You're all looking, it's in the Bible. They grabbed his clothes and he ran away anyway, starkers down the street. Uh, and you think, uh, why is that there? Why is that there? What's, the, what's that message about? I don't, I don't know. Some people, um, uh, some people wonder whether it's Mark himself. It's like a little aside. You know, there's all this going on. You know, Mark's like going sort of self deprecating. And there was one Muppet who ran away without his clothes on. You know, that's me. You know, so that's a thought. Anyway, that's not the most important thing I've said this morning. Yeah? Let's not talk about that all coffee time. Um, two disciples are mentioned by name to help us really focus in on what the passage is saying to us Judas and Peter. They both failed, neither of their failures was fatal. You remember what Jesus said, didn't he? As soon as he said, you'll all fall away. What's the very next thing? Afterwards, I will go on ahead and meet you in Galilee. Forget what verse that is, but it's there. If you just in the chapter, it's right there. Make sure you've got it in front of you. You're reading it. You know that this stuff's true. Because there isn't a failure that's fatal. But the difference between Judas and Peter is that Peter came back. And Judas, in all his agony and all his anguish, couldn't believe enough in the grace of God to keep himself uh, alive. And maybe that's where you are this morning. You kind of feel like your sense of extravagant devotion is just crushed, buried under one failure after another. Uh, and Jesus says, hey, just come back. I, I, I love you so much. Just come back. Stop, stop wallowing. Stop being allowing shame to, to determine your future. Just come back. Come back and know healing and forgiveness and restoration. Come back and see the extravagant, reckless devotion of God on the cross. See what you are holding on to, already nailed to Jesus on the cross and come back. And Peter came back. Enough devotion, enough commitment to Jesus just to get himself there, back into Galilee, on that beach, all of those stories post-resurrection that we read about. A little devotion changes destinies. That's good preaching right there. A little devotion changes destinies. That's Peter's story. And he became this tower of strength for the future of the church. A fearless proponent of the gospel. Past failures are a clue to powerful futures. I'm on a roll. Past failures. Think about your failures. Think about those bits of you that you think, oh, I wish... Past failures are often a clue to powerful futures. <laughs> Thank you, Jane. Yes, yeah, it's amazing. In the place where we've failed can be the place where we give the greatest glory to God. And Peter became the most powerful preacher. It, it didn't take long, did it? It was just a few weeks later, 3,000 get saved by his first sermon. That's not a bad gig by anyone's standards. But before all this, he couldn't say boo to a slave girl. Something about the, the extravagant devotion of Jesus had gripped his life, and he would be forever changed as he lived under the avalanche of God's grace, of God's love, and God's mercy. Maybe for some of us this morning, it's, hey, I'm coming back. I'm just coming back. My devotion has been a little awkward, a little stilted, a little disciplined, and I don't mean that in a bad way. You need discipline to create habit, to create lifestyle, but uh, kind of, I'm just going to do this. It's all outward form without an inner... I'm coming, I'm coming back. I'm, I'm coming back. I see the extravagance of, of what that uh, woman, girl, whoever it was, did. Mary, maybe. Different stories, different theories. Don't get caught up on that. It misses the whole point. What she did captures something in me. I don't want to be any more. Those people on the sidelines are going, you could have spent that money on the poor. Now, it's not that the poor aren't important. We know that. Don't misunderstand me. We're giving our lives for the last, the lost, and the least. Are you with me? So Jesus isn't saying about that. He's, he spent three years doing that. He's saying, don't use something else as a smokescreen just because your devotion is being challenged. He looked at that broken jar on the floor, and Jesus said, that's a beautiful thing. What's your broken jar? Let's be quiet. Lord, if I'm honest, I find these verses deeply challenging. I find this woman's devotion extraordinary. I want to think of a host of reasons why it was embarrassing and awkward. And I realize that it's most embarrassing and it's most awkward because it it challenges my heart, challenges my devotion, it challenges my reckless abandon to the one who's loved me and given himself for me. I see in Peter and those other disciples the same urgency to compare myself with others that I might make myself feel a bit better by standing on someone else's shoulders. If I can push someone down, then maybe it will raise me up. And I hear the futility, the ugliness, the divisiveness of living that way. And the gentle but truthful pronouncement of Jesus, you've all fallen away. Give it a break. Wind your neck in. You're all in need of my grace. You're all in need of my love. And so I'm left wondering, where I'm too busy snoring, to see what you've placed in front of me, I'm left wondering where I'm asleep. When you declare over my life in the words of that Paul quoted in Ephesians, rise up, wake up, O sleeper, and let the light of Christ shine on you. And so I make my way back to the cross because I see that it's all there. It all happens there. It's the cross that makes sense of it all. She, she did it because she saw what you were doing Her extravagant devotion from our perspective was utterly extravagant, but was then dwarfed by your extravagant love back to her and to us. And so keep my gaze fixed on the Son of God who loves me and who gave himself for me. And so wake me up in the name of Jesus. And so even as we sing, draw us on that whatever our times, our circumstances, our situations, we would bless you. We would serve you, we would live for you, we would allow our lives to be broken open and poured out in devotion, in a small reflection of your life broken and poured out for us. That our words and our lives would declare to you alone belongs the highest praise.